Hey there, it is your buddy Bags here. This is the orange space for men's mental health. And I've got a ripper of an episode coming up for you today featuring one of my great mates. His name is Luke Rolnick. Some of you know him as Booker. And he has climbed Mount Everest, made it to the summit. What a fucking achievement. And I can't wait for you to hear this chat. Many lessons to learn. Welcome to our new listeners as well to the Orange Space. If you're wondering what this is all about, it's a weekly check-in with me. I'm just an average guy, no expert. I deal with my own mental health issues from time to time as well. And I do the research and then share the knowledge with you so that hopefully if you are going through something similar, it can help you out. And if you're not, uh, weekly check-in. You know, you can pop this in your ears whenever you're on your bike, on the bus, in the car, maybe at home, going to bed, whenever you want. Put me in your ears and we can hopefully just make each other feel a little bit better. Now, you may have heard in the last episode that I mentioned that I really want to be able to meet you guys in person. Uh, by episode 40, which is still a fair few episodes away. We're only at episode 15 or 16 now. But I thought the location could be Bondi Icebergs in Sydney, as we are based in Sydney at the moment. So I thought that could be uh, a great first location. Now, I understand that we are heard in over 50 countries at the moment, and you guys are the OGs. You are here from the very beginning. So we'll start off with Sydney, and then we'll take it from there. But yeah, episode 40, I would love the opportunity to be able to meet with you in person jump in that iceberg's water, maybe have a beer after. That will be bloody brilliant. All right, now one of the lessons I learned from Booker in the edit for doing this podcast was the moment where he was talking about being grateful while he was on Mount Everest for just the simple things in life. The material things didn't matter to him and he realized this when he was on the mountain. And I thought today's episode could be based around being grateful and how gratitude can really help our mental health. So practicing gratitude has been shown to have numerous benefits for our mental and physical health. When we focus on what we're grateful for, we shift our attention away from negative thoughts and emotions. And so this in turn can reduce stress and anxiety and improve our mood and increase our overall life satisfaction. So one of the simplest ways to practice gratitude is to incorporate it into our daily routine. This can be as simple as taking a few minutes each morning or evening to reflect on the things that we are grateful for. It can also be really helpful to write down these things in a gratitude journal if you're open to doing this or share them with your loved ones. Yulia, my wife, and I will often do this sometimes when we're both going through a really stressful time. I've mentioned this before that we will say to each other, hey, list off five things that you are grateful for today. And we can always do it quite easily. One, two, three, four, five, we're off. And then next thing you know, we're both feeling, the the actual smiles come over our faces pretty much straight away when we say the things to each other out aloud. You know, we all do this. We often overlook the small things in life that bring us joy and happiness. Taking the time to appreciate these things can help us feel more grateful for our lives. This can be anything from a beautiful sunset, a kind gesture, or just the smell of wet grass. So expressing gratitude in our relationships can strengthen them and improve our overall well-being. Taking the time to thank our loved ones for their support and kindness can make them feel appreciated and valued. And this can also help us feel more connected to those who are around us. And finally, practicing gratitude can be especially helpful during really difficult times. When we're facing challenges, it can be easy to focus on what is going wrong. However, 
taking a step back and focusing on the things that we are grateful for can help us maintain a more positive outlook and navigate challenges more effectively. So that is just some of the rough research that I did for you today around gratitude. And by practicing gratitude in our daily lives, we can improve our overall well-being and live much happier, more fulfilling lives as well. All right, let's get into today's guest. His name is Luke Rolnick. Some of you may know him as Booker. You can check him out on TikTok. Just search at Booker's Ballsy Expeditions. Ballsy spelt with a Z. Booker has climbed Mount Everest. He's made it to the summit and he is an adventure seeker, an absolute legend. This is our chat. I hope you enjoy. Booker, how are you, mate? I'm good, Bags. How are you, mate? Thanks for having me on. Mate, this is a little bit weird for us because we've been good mates for a long time now, over 13 years. And to have this kind of a conversation, it's probably a little bit different to the way that we would normally talk when we're at the pub or we're just shooting the shit. First of all, mate, congratulations on climbing Mount Everest. It's a fucking huge achievement. What are the feelings that you have after doing something as massive as that? I've been asked a lot of times and I think I've put it down to kind of three buckets or three you know emotions and so one of them obviously you're on top of the world so you feel superhuman you feel on top of the world you feel like you can achieve anything Mm -hmm. Um, that's kind of one part of it and then another part of it is you feel incredibly small you feel you know like a grain of sand because you know when you're up near the summit there was a time where I walked past uh, three three dead bodies uh, in about what 15 minutes and you know you you know that your mortality is you know on the line and at any stage the mountain can kind of take you if it wants and really every element's trying to kill you it's the altitude um, and, and lack of air it's the cold it's exhaustion it's the terrain if you slip and and fall so everything's trying to kill you so you see you feel really small and then the third thing is i was really blown away by I guess how many people were interested in in what I was doing and when I left to go and do it I thought that I was doing something kind of selfish and you know no one would really care that much like I was going to climb it for myself and uh, yeah the amount of support that I had I, I feel like maybe because I was going away to do something dangerous people felt more comfortable to tell me things that they wouldn't normally say mm-hmm. and you know people saying that they love me and be safe and, and all of that sort of stuff and I think in in normal life we don't sort of tell each other that enough so why did you want to do this in the first place what was the moment for you where you said to yourself I am going to climb Mount Everest and, and why what's the why I guess first of all I started mountaineering uh, in 2016 after the the death of a close friend um, Ben Butler uh, and he was only 42 when he passed away and he died of a cancer. And when he died, I I guess it really struck me that sometimes life can be short and it's really important for you to live your dreams and, and do the things that you really want to do in life. And so I'd always had a bucket list goal to go to Mount Everest Base Camp and to climb a Himalayan mountain. And I didn't care which mountain it was. I just wanted to climb a mountain that was in the Himalayas and it's easy for me to to admit now that I've climbed Mount Everest that when I first started dreaming it up, I was like, I wonder if I could climb Mount Everest. Mm. And so I set the goal to to climb a, you know, a smaller one and then 
Uh, even after that one, I never told anyone that the plan was to climb Mount Everest and I went and climbed other mountains. And then, yeah, eventually once I had the confidence uh, and I thought that I could, then, you know, that's sort of when I decided that, yep, I'm going for it. And so what's the training like? Like how much training do you have to go through to actually get yourself to the point where you feel like, okay, I can actually do this? Heaps of training. It's it's a lot of hiking with heavy backpack, with weight vests, uh, it's a lot of, you know, deadlifting, lunging, uh, you know, leg kind of conditioning. Uh, and then really I, you know, I guess for me, I climbed Mount Everest in 2022. It was meant to be 2020 that I climbed it because I climbed Mount Manaslu in 2019, but then COVID came and I couldn't leave the country. So I had to keep training for, for two more years and I got to the stage where if, if I didn't go in 2022, I don't think I would have had it in me to, to keep training for another year. Um, you know, so I guess on the positive side of it, I was really conditioned and really, really ready to go. Uh, but on the negative side, I think if it had been any longer, emotionally, I probably wouldn't have been ready. I would have been emotionally too tired. So I've seen your TikTok where you are sharing videos daily of your experience from being on Mount Everest. I want you to take us there right now. Take us to the moment where you are in the middle of your climb and you come across the first dead body and what thoughts are going through your mind when you see you're climbing Mount Everest and then you're seeing someone who is trying to do what you are doing right now and you're thinking, what? Uh, it wasn't until I got up really high on the mountain that I saw any, any bodies and there's a section called the Cornus Ridge. And when I was going along that section, I remember getting to the to the first body that I saw. It was in a kind of a, a grey suit and really close. You know, I'm talking one inch away from where I put my foot on the trail. And so where this person was or, or this body, uh, below it was looking down into the abyss, really. There was clouds far below. It was a pretty steep section. And you have to go across a sloped piece of rock and you've got steel crampons on so that they can dig into the ice and snow. But on this part, you have to go across rock. And so you're sort of traversing across the rock. You're not going up against the slope. And so it really was confronting to have this body right below me. And at that point, I I did feel scared. I felt like, wow, this is... You know, that's the consequence that can happen if I make a mistake here or if I stay here for too long or, you know. And so at that point, I never ever thought that I might not make it in terms of my physical ability. I felt really good. I was fit. I'd trained hard. But at that point, I did have thoughts of how much do I want this and is it worth it? And I guess at the time I decided that I haven't come this far to only come this far. And so I decided that I am going to continue on and, you know, obviously I don't want that to be the, the result, but I'm, you know, trying to live my best life here and, and this is a, a big dream of mine. And so, you know, at that point I was only probably, uh, I would say 30 or 40 vertical meters below the summit. So I was, I was very close. Talk to me about what it's like to cross one of those very thin ladders that you seem to... I don't know why they are such a thin ladder and maybe you can explain that, 
the ladders that look like they're not very sturdy. They look like they're pretty much tied together with a few ropes and you're crossing a, a crevasse that looks like it's thousands and thousands and thousands of metres deep. Um, what on earth is that like? I guess it's worth explaining that particular part of the climb is almost at the bottom of the mountain. It's as soon as you leave base camp, you have to go through what's called the Kumbu Icefall. And the icefall is essentially, if you can imagine water running down a river and underneath where there's rocks, that creates rapids. And so it creates all that white water. If you imagine that, but the water's frozen, so it's all ice. And then you imagine on a huge scale, that's what creates the icefall because there's all that uh, rock and, and structures underneath that's breaking up the glacier. And so it's always moving. The weight of the ice, it's always moving down essentially the waterfall or the icefall. And as it moves down, those chunks of ice break and they create deep, deep crevasses. And so at the start of each season, a bunch of Sherpa called icefall doctors uh, go into there and they set the route that the, you know, the teams will take up Mount Everest for the season. And they take the ladders up. So the reason the ladders are so thin they're aluminium ladders so that they're light uh, when you're going up there you're at about five and a half thousand meters at the bottom of it and then when you get to the top you're at six thousand one hundred meters so you know it's kind of six or seven hundred meters in vertical height up the icefall and so it's really important that those ladders are light so that they can be carried up and they put them across the crevasse and then they tie the uh, the ladders uh, some rope around the ladders, uh, around the legs, and then they'll use ice screws to fix it to essentially the ice. So the ladders are screwed into the ice. Yeah, go and check out Booker's TikTok, uh, Booker's Ballsy Expeditions. You can see some of these videos and you will see the depth of the crevasse and also the... the I don't know how you did that at all, mate. Like that to me is just like, nah. Now I'm going to play uh, one of your TikTok videos right now that we can all listen to. And this is the moment where you reach the top of Mount Everest and you get extremely emotional. Uh, take a listen to this. Mount oh, Everest done. <laughs> it's 12 o'clock on the 14th of May and at 8 o'clock this morning I started Mount Everest. Oh, I can't tell you how exhausted I am. Can't even take my crampons off. Oh my god, that was uh, scary. Actually, um, I don't think I've ever been so scared in my life. Um, it's amazing how sheer rock cliffs when you've got crampons on. Um, um, you got steel crampons on and you got to walk on sheer rock that's like this and it goes down into the abyss and there's dead bodies around there and parts of bodies but anyway I need to sleep I need to rest um I'm really 
I'm really touched um, with all the support and um, I'm really proud of what I've achieved um, and I think it's only just starting to sink in but um, I couldn't have done it without the support of everyone back home and I can't wait to get home and have a party with everybody. So thank you. Talk to us. What what is that feeling like when you when you realise that you have reached Mount Everest and what was going through your mind? Kind of a lonely feeling, if I'm really honest. And for anyone who's done any any big event like a marathon or a triathlon, when you get to the end, and actually Bags, you and I ran a half marathon together many years ago. If you could imagine that feeling when you were really tired, you you knew you were going to finish, and you were feeling really, really tired about a kilometer out, but then you ran past all the, you know, the people that were there cheering and clapping and saying, well done. And, you know, it really gives you a boost. But when you climb to the top of a mountain, especially Mount Everest, you get to the top and there's hardly anyone there. And there's no one there to Mm. say well done or give you a pat on the back or anything like that. And so it's, it's a kind of a lonely experience, but it's a really personal experience and I guess for me, you know, I was very emotional. I was happy. I was relieved. I was exhausted physically, emotionally exhausted. And when you go up there and you reach the top and you touch, there's a, a little brass statue of a man. And when you touch the little brass statue, you know, you know, yeah, I'm, I'm on the top of the world. And I actually did a circle around it. So I went onto the Tibetan side, in which is China run. Uh, and so I guess I, I crossed the country's border on the top of Mount Everest and, uh, yeah, did a full circle. And then after I'd done that is when I sat down and, you know, kind of just took it all in. Uh, so when I made that video, I was about one or two vertical meters below the summit. Uh, I did make a video from the summit where I did a 360 degree view. Uh, but when I sat down, the the mixture of emotions was just huge. There was every sort of elation that you can think of. But then also I've got in the back of my head, those three bodies that I just walked past and I'm thinking about, Hey, did they make it to the top? And then they've, that's how far down they've gotten. How long should I stay here for? You know, you know, there's, just so many emotions going through your head and so I think it's it's impossible to not shed a tear um but then I also had to go well hang on that's enough celebrating now you got to get down you're only halfway I can't imagine how proud of yourself you feel in that moment did you say anything out loud you mentioned there's no one around really to celebrate with but did you say anything out loud either to yourself or did you actually say anything out loud to the world from, from the top of the world? No, I didn't. I, I didn't say it out loud. I, there was a, first of all, there was other people around. So there was people there. There was about, I think, six people up there or seven people when I was there, and which is really common. One of the things that people don't know about Mount Everest is each year there's only around about five days that you can go to the summit in the whole year. Um, because the conditions are good enough for you to go. And so are you talking to each other? They're, like you said, there's six people there. Are you, are you talking? Are you saying something to each other? Are you congratulating each other? What, what are you guys doing? And, and can you speak through whatever you're wearing? Yeah, not really. You're not, you, you might say a few words, but you're certainly not having big conversations for a multitude of reasons. Number one, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's hard to talk. It's hard to breathe, let alone talk. 
Um, you can take your face mask off. I took my, my mask off or pulled it down, which was my oxygen mask, so that I could make some of those videos. And I obviously wanted to be able to prove that it was in fact me and I'm not covered by a, a mask. Uh, but as I said before, you know, I, I got into it because of the death of a, a friend and I'd carried his photo up every mountain that I climbed and I left his photo on the top of, of Mount Everest. And so I did say a few words actually out loud um, to him and actually just getting a little bit emotional now, uh, thinking about it and talking about it. But yeah, I, I said a few words and said, rest in peace, um, Benny. And, you know, I've actually got that on on the uh, the video that I made of the 360 degree view. And so, yeah, that was probably the part that I did that video first. I said, you know, goodbye to, to Ben and rest in peace. And, and then I sat down and yeah, made those other videos where I was really emotional. Yeah, mate, good on you. And, and, and Ben's family must uh, absolutely love what you have done for, for them and, and for Ben. Um, let's start working our way back down from the summit now. There's something that you've mentioned to me, and it's actually been a little lesson from Mount Everest that I guess you have learned that you've passed on that I love. Talk to me about the moment where everyone is asking the people that are coming down from the summit, what's it like? So there's only one safety rope up and down uh, the mountain. And so the people that are on the rope going up are on the same rope as the people that are going down. And I had a bit of an epiphany on the way down. I'd been to the summit I was exhausted. I, you know, had obviously, you know, I was, I was happy and I just needed to get down to safety, but there are other people going up and because they're going up, they're going up to a new altitude. There's thinner air. They're exhausted at the time and you have to pass each other. And so at that point, someone has to unclip from the rope and, you know, sort of go around the other person. And if you were unclipped and you fell at that point, you would most likely fall to your death. So no one really wants to be unclipped or you might unclip off the rope and then clip to the other person and then clip back to the rope again once you pass them. But I probably passed 100 people, I think, throughout the, the day, whether it was people you know going to, to camp three, uh, sorry, camp four uh, or up to the summit. And of those 100 people, I reckon only two, two of them stopped me and said, have you been to the summit? I said, yes. They said, what's it like? How much further is it to camp for? What's the summit like? And they actually asked me questions about what it was like to go up. And I, the epiphany that I had was how many times in life, whether it's your boss or a superior at work, and you think that they're a pain in your ass, just like those people that were going up, I was just a pain in their ass because they either had to unclip or they had to stop or, or whatever. And so for them, I was a pain in their ass. And in life, how many times do you look at people that are above you or where you want to be and you think that they're a pain in the ass, but you don't actually stop and go, well, what can I learn from this person? Or, you know, maybe they actually do understand how I feel. And, you know, for me, it was in a work sense when, you know, you're looking up at people that are above you in a work sense and thinking, well, my boss doesn't understand. He doesn't know what I'm going through, he or she. They don't know what I'm going through. And, you know, a lot of times they actually do. But you're just so much in your world of hurt that you think that it's only what you're going through that matters. And you, you kind of suffer in your own pain, if that makes sense. 
All right, so all up, I know that you're at base camp for about six weeks. What was your emotional state like when you were at base camp? Because six weeks, that to me, that's a fucking long time. Yeah, it, it is. And so so that the listeners understand, uh, when you climb Mount Everest, you don't just go from the bottom to the top. You have to do what we call rotations, which is a series of trips up and down the mountain where you go higher and higher each time so that your body can acclimatize and produce more red blood cells so that you can deal with the lack of oxygen and so when I first got to base camp I was super excited it's like yeah we're doing this we're climbing Mount Everest Uh, I love it at Everest base camp it's beautiful you've got massive mountains around you and it's really really a picturesque place Um, I also love the expedition life where you sleep in tents and you know, cook in tents, eat in tents. Uh, I love that lifestyle of being remote and in a kind of wilderness area. And so at the start, it was really great. By the end, when I'd done all of my rotations up and down the mountain and I was ready to go and we were just waiting for the right weather window to, um, you know, the forecast where we could have sort of six days of good weather in a row so that we could make our attempt to go up to the summit. And In that time when I was waiting, physically and mentally, I was ready to go and climb the mountain because, you know, I've trained for it for two years. I've put in the the work to acclimatize and I'm ready to go. And now I just have to wait for the weather. And so the process of waiting, though every day I was waking up going, I don't want to be here. Like I'm done. I can't put up with this anymore. Like boredom had absolutely set in. I was so bored. I didn't want to be at base camp anymore and I just wanted to go. And I think, you know, one of the other lessons for me is just a lesson in patience. I'm not the most patient person in the world and I do like to, you know, I tend to think that if it's meant to be, it's up to me. But in that time, I realized that, you know, I can't control the weather and I can't control when I get to go. I just need to be patient and wait And the other thing that I realized while I was at base camp and I was, you know, bored and not wanting to be there was that everything that I wanted in life back home, I actually already had, you know, I wasn't at base camp thinking about what shoes I wanted to buy or what sort of car I wanted to drive or any of the kind of stereotypical things that people put pressure on themselves to get. Uh, All I was thinking about was I can't wait to get home and cuddle my dogs and, go have a beer with my mates and, you know, see my other friends. And and they were the really sort of important things to me. And I guess I realized when you're in an environment where survival and, you know, it's a really simple life, um, you're literally just eating and kind of sleeping, um, you know, what was really important to me. That is such an important lesson for all of us to, to grab. Um, we all do it, right? We all want the next Audi or the Mercedes, or the better house with the five bedrooms and the bigger backyard, or the house near the beach, or whatever it is that is driving us to work and grind and grind and grind. And sometimes if we actually look around at what we actually have and decide to be happy with what we have and be grateful for what we have, God, it can put our mindset into a, such a much better state. That's right. And I, th- I think it's, it's important to recognize what actually truly makes you happy you know i think society sometimes puts pressure on us to 
to tell us the things that we should like. You know, we you look through your whether it's you know your, your social media platforms or it might be on TV or it might be in magazines, and we're bombarded with advertising. And you know, we see all these things that we should have or that we need. And you know, I think it's really important to understand what actually truly makes you happy as opposed to what you think's going to make you happy. And you know, when you can ever be in an environment where all of that is just stripped away. You know, there's there's not very good Wi-Fi. So I pretty much only had enough Wi-Fi to do some posts on Facebook so that my family and friends knew I was alive. But there's no scrolling. There's no seeing the news. Um, you know, there's none of that stuff. And so to be away from that for almost two months was really refreshing and it made it really clear, you know, what I want in life and what sort of life I want to live and what's important and what's going to really make me happy. So if you don't mind, let's talk about 2018 because I know this was a particularly hard year for you and you were climbing, was it Mount Manaslu that you were climbing at the time? No, that was 19. It was it was Mount Amadablam um, in, in Mount 18. Mount Amadablam. Uh, Amadablam, yeah. <laughs> Ab- uh, how do you say it? Arma, so A-M-A. Arma. Yeah. Dublin, D-A-B-L-A-M. Dublin. So I'm a Dublin. Yeah. Right. And you've only told me this recently. Basically, what you told me was that you, at that time in 2018, when you were doing that mountain climb, you didn't really care whether you came home. Meaning that if you had not made it back from the mountain, you didn't particularly really care. Yeah. So when you told me that, I was pretty, I was shocked because you're someone that I never picture having these thoughts. I always think, oh, Booker's got his shit together. Booker's basically perfect, right? So what was going on then? You know, I hope that sharing this stuff does help other people because I think when you feel like that, number one, you feel like you're the only person that feels that way. And, you know, I had, I, I was battling some pretty big demons and, you know, I did some things in my life that I wasn't proud of and uh, I was I was in a, a really a bad place and it's it was really interesting just exactly how you said it then when you said, you know, I always thought that Booker was this guy who's got his shit together and, um, you know, for me, Booker's my nickname and my real name's Luke and, you know, I like to be a high performer, I like to do well at work, I like to do well in life, I obviously to climb Mount Everest, I am a high achiever. And I think the feeling of just always trying to be perfect and always trying to measure up and I I felt like Booker was this sort of unrealistic person that I could never live up to. Um, You know, he's a guy that doesn't make mistakes. He's a guy that um, always performs well at work and, and it's not okay for me to make a mistake. And, and in life, it's not okay for me to make a mistake. And I always have to be sensible and I have to make good decisions. I think some of those expectations were put onto me externally. But I think if I'm really honest now, looking back, most of those expectations were put on myself. Um, and trying to live up to the person who I thought I should be, as opposed to either who I wanted to be and, and who I really was. And so... Amadablam is a very technical mountain and yeah I like you said I you know I didn't care if I came home after that mountain and you know I look back on that time now and go wow I was in a worse place than I really realized and 
actually a really funny story that, you know, without this part of my story, I definitely wouldn't be on here talking about this and being, I guess, I guess brave enough to talk about it. Um, there's a book called Braving the Wilderness by an author called Brené Brown. And I'm not sure if, if you've heard of Brené Brown, but she's a essentially a vulnerability expert. And I listen to a lot of books on Audible. And so there was a recommendation on Audible for this book called Braving the Wilderness. And so I'd had like five credits I needed to use on Audible. And so I thought, yep, I'll download that one. I thought it was going to be a book about being in the wilderness. And it actually was a book about vulnerability. And the wilderness is being able to talk about your feelings and talk about emotions and being vulnerable. And so I stumbled across this book at a time in my life when I really needed to hear it. And at the start, I was like, oh, what's this crap? And then I listened a bit and I listened a bit and, and then, yeah, sure enough, it's, uh, it was exactly what I needed to hear. So, yeah, looking back on that time in my life, um, I, you know, if there's anyone that's listening that is having a, a rough time, um, you know, I can say 100% just, you know, hang in there and, and talk to your mates, talk to people. Um, I didn't at the time and, you know, I wish I did you know, look, yourself bags, you know, you would have never known that I was in that place. and No idea. Yeah, I only, I only found out about it, what, six months ago. Yeah. And I, I wish you'd just picked up the phone and, you know, you, you and I, our, our friendship is we will take the piss out of each other. So I'm sure that you would have had thoughts in your mind of like, well, what is, what is he going to say or do I even feel comfortable sharing this with him? But I'm sure if you had started the conversation and at least let me just have the like have the opportunity to listen to you, um, oh, I, geez, I would have I would have loved to have had that opportunity just to be there to support you know, um, and I think that's how most people feel around around anybody who has that you know when they do realize oh shit hang on this is not just. This is not just someone being sad for a few days. This is someone who's actually in a state of they need help. Um, I think anybody will will do what they need to do, and and majority of the time, all it is is just being an ear, just listening. Yeah, and I think a hundred percent for your mates. Of course, you're gonna be there and listen to your mates. And I guess you know the reason I probably didn't talk about it was I couldn't. I was finding it really hard for even me to identify how I was feeling. I knew I wasn't right. But I didn't really know how to put it into words or, you know, even try and talk about it at the time. So I think, yeah, talking about it is one thing, but I, I'm not sure whether other guys are, are like this. But for me, you know, when I'm not feeling great or when I'm struggling with something, I tend to go really inward and I don't talk much. I go into my shell and now, after doing all this work around vulnerability and, and whatnot, I'm more than happy to to talk about it. And, you know, th- through the process of you doing this podcast, you and I, Bags, have had some really great conversations and I'm, I'm really glad that we have. You know, even still, there was a couple of weeks ago where I went pretty quiet and I was trying to work out, okay, what's going on here? How am I feeling? And, you know, it wasn't until I'd sort of worked it out in my own head that I could go, okay, this is how I'm feeling. Because now I could put labels on things, you know. So I think it's just important to just start the process and, and talk about it. The thing that I find is that I don't really like, if I'm in that zone, you know, where you're 
things are pretty dark. Uh, what I found is that I didn't, I don't really like talking to people too close. Um, and this is just the way that I deal with it. Everyone has their ways of dealing with things differently. Um, and I've found that talking to a therapist who's not connected to anyone, like around, so there's no judgment, I find that the most healthy place for me to get back on track. Because some of us, so this is this is the way I feel, whenever there is that zone where you were, you know, four or five weeks ago, the anxiety for me when I've shared something, that that could get thrown back at me further down the track for some reason I try to protect myself from that because I have to be you know vulnerable and I have to share and so I do find that talking to a therapist and I might do that every fortnight or every once every month with someone that is my therapist is over in the UK but I know that she's never really ever going to be coming into my day-to-day life so therefore I can really download every thought if there's a if there's anything that's bugging me I can literally say it to her and then we can have that discussion this is the way that I deal with it if you are struggling to talk with your mates because you are worried about a judgment I highly recommend talking to someone that is not necessarily in your circle feels a little bit strange when you're first going through that phase because you've got to build a bit of rapport and relationship before you just start downloading everything. But that's what these professionals are trained to do. They're there to be a, an ear for you. All right, so let's talk about dads because you and I both have father figures. They are both still uh, alive. We both don't really communicate with them. Uh, we both have our own reasons. and. I'll share mine, first of all. So basically, my grandparents were very, I would describe them as a very sterile relationship. So never really showed any emotions, never really hugged, never really showed love, right? And then that came down to my my dad and then obviously growing up in that household that I grew up in, it was very similar. It was very, I guess the words are sterile. There were no emotions or affection or really any praise or anything like that and so we I think pretty much for me ever since the age of 16 we haven't really had a proper relationship we will catch up on occasion and and I'll try my best um, to try to get the you know the relationship to where it should be between a, a father and a son but I find that it's majority of the time it's actually quite painful because something will be said that I just can't uh, either handle to be around and so I guess I've gone into a bit of a protection mode by giving distance between our actual relationship. You have a bit of a similar scenario between you and your dad. Yeah I do. Uh, My mum and dad divorced when I was two and uh, so I was born in Darwin and we moved south down to country Victoria and so I grew up without my dad being in my life um, for, for a really long time. And I always wanted him to be. Um, but for whatever reason, uh, he, he wasn't. And I guess I, I had a bit of a chip on my shoulder and I lived for you know probably the first 25 years of my life trying to always be better than my dad or trying to you know, prove that I was going to be more successful or just a better human. And it wasn't until I was 25 that I, he was living in Perth at the time. And 
I flew over to Perth and met him. And, um, you know, the really interesting thing was a lot of what I thought I was going to say to him, uh, I never said because I just realized that it just doesn't matter. And yeah, I guess, you know, I kind of, after that trip, it was one of the hardest things I've ever done in my life flying over there to meet him. Um, but I also met two half sisters and, uh, you know, one of those, my, the youngest is, is Casey and I've just gotten back from Perth, uh, this week where I've been over to Perth, uh, to support her doing the Perth to Rottnest Island swim, which is a almost 20 K ocean swim. And her and I are quite close now. And, you know, if I never went over there to, to talk to dad, I would have never had a relationship with Casey. And, you know, I saw dad when I was over there and, you know, we, we had dinner for, about two hours and that was the only time I've spoken to him in about six years and I guess one of the things for my relationship is I just needed to change my expectation and you know I think sometimes we put expectations onto other people and I don't want to say unrealistic expectations but we we just have expectations and what I've learned is that you know my life is is mine to live and his life is his to live and he can live his how he chooses to and I'll live mine how I choose to and you know I guess between the two of us we've chosen to not really have a close relationship and you know I'm okay with that now uh, for a long time I, I wasn't and I think for you know some of the battles that I've dealt with for a long time were were to do with that but you know I've definitely gotten past it now and I think for me it comes down to you know, the, the expectations that I had. Let's go back to Mount Everest. You've come off Mount Everest. You've got on that flight. You're coming home. You're eating some airplane food and probably thinking, what the fuck? Talk about like stepping off the plane and then getting back to Australia, probably seeing your family, your friends for the very first time. There must have been a bit of a coming down from the mountain in a way, like, you know, you're on top of the world and then you're back to normal life. What was that like? I've climbed Mount Everest and it was the same after I climbed Manaslu. So Manaslu is the eighth highest mountain in the world, which is the one that I did in 2019. And when you get off the plane and you come back to Australia, you know, in my mind, I'm like a hero, right? Like I've just climbed Mount Everest. And every single person I walk past, I feel like going, do you know what I've done? Do you know, do you know what I did? And you know, you kind of think that, I don't know, the world's going to change in some way, but it doesn't. I mean, the world's changed for me and, and how I view myself, but in the eyes of everybody else, I'm still the same guy. And, you know, it, it was really great. I, my mum was at the airport. She had a sign um, that she was holding up saying Mount Everest. And, uh, you know, one of my mates was there at the airport as well, which was really nice. Um, so that part of it was amazing. Um, you know, I felt a little bit like to, to those people, I was coming home and it was a bit of a hero's welcome. Uh, but then once I'd been home for a while, uh, I got a little bit depressed and I guess now I've done quite a few of these things and I, I knew that it would be coming. And even some of the people that I work with before I left, I did say to them, Hey, look, when I get back, I'm probably going to be super happy. And for the first month back at work, everybody that I hadn't seen for a while was asking about the trip and I was talking about it. And, and so it was really great. I was still on a high. And then just like everything, it becomes yesterday's news. And, you know, then for me, I'm still sort of on this high, but everybody else has moved on. And, you know, you, you start to get a little bit depressed. And so 
I was kind of thinking to myself, you know, what do I do? And, you know, where, where what is my life doing now? What am I doing? Um, you know, climbing Mount Everest was just such a, a huge part of my life for so long. I was, you know, learning the skills. I was training. I was focused. It took a huge commitment training-wise. Uh, financially, it was a huge commitment. And so then once you achieve it, it's it's just done. And so then there's this sense and this feeling of, well, what do I do now? What's next? And when you don't really know, the the common question that people ask you when they see you is, well, you've climbed Mount Everest now, what's next? And at the time I was just like, well, I don't know. And, you know, the one thing that I did know though uh, was that I didn't want to be out of my comfort zone for a while. So I was like, look, what's next? I don't know. You know, sometimes being in your comfort zone and appreciating what you've got and where you are and what you've achieved in life is really important. And again, I think sometimes we are almost made to feel like if we're not out of our comfort zone and we're not, you know, we're, we're not uncomfortable, then we're not succeeding in life or we're not pushing ourselves hard enough or we're not growing. And, you know, I think if I use an analogy um, from a, as a personal trainer, you know, we go into the gym, we lift weights, we put our bodies under stress. And when we leave the gym, we're weaker than when we started because we've torn our muscles, we've put them under stress and then when we get the recovery time that's when our muscles recover and they get stronger and so we're probably led to believe that you know lifting weights makes us stronger when it's actually the recovery that makes us stronger and so you know with really big goals in life and climbing Mount Everest I had to come back and I had to recover and I had to you know emotionally come down from that high pardon the pun there um but you know, I had to let my body physically recover and I had to emotionally recover and, and all of that. And then, you know, through that process, I've now got some other things that I'm, I'm really working on and I do know what's next. And, you know, I'll have other mountains that I'll climb, but there's other things that I'm working on now since I've been back that I'm really excited about. And, you know, there's absolutely no depressed thoughts anymore um, from the, the Mount Everest trip. It's just all excitement and, you know, what am I working on now? You mentioned that you got back on the plane, coming home, you wanted to tell everybody, hey, look, I've climbed Mount Everest and you viewed the world differently after this. What Describe that. What, what were you viewing differently? Can you explain, like, for example, I haven't climbed Mount Everest and you have. So what are you seeing in the world that I'm maybe not? I don't know whether it's what you're seeing in the world. Um, there's a, I think I read this in a book. It said, uh, what's above knows what's below, but what's below does not know what's above. And after climbing Mount Everest, there's, you know, I know now there's not any point on the planet that's higher forever for my life. There's nowhere higher that I can go on this planet. And, it just gives you a feeling of confidence and I guess a different kind of self-esteem that I never had before. And it's not that I'm, I'm not better than anyone and I'm not, you know, I'm not invincible to the world, certainly. But I guess you just, you know, when you achieve something like that, it makes you probably less scared of the world and, and you start to go, well, if I can do that, what else can I do? You know, so I think it just, in some ways, my world got bigger 
but it feels like the world got smaller. Let's talk about TikTok because you are now on TikTok and you're doing extremely well, I believe. Some of your videos almost have a million views already, which is fantastic. Uh, you've got a whole heap of followers on there as well. Go and check out Booker's Ballsy Expeditions. Uh, but what's it like dealing with people on TikTok? And I'm talking about people that are negative, right? So people that are writing negative comments, people that are writing to you, hey, there's a Starbucks at the top of Mount Everest, like <laughs> all of these kind of th silly things that get said. And, and sure, there's an element of humor in that, right? But at the same time, how does that make you feel? And how also, how do you deal with, I guess, trolling and negativity on a, on a platform like TikTok? It's something that's extremely new to me. Uh, I've never been really big on any sort of socials. And, um, you know, I, I went on TikTok and put some videos up. And I remember I was down in Sydney with you when we, we sort of put the first one up that, had, you know, it went viral. And at the time I had two followers and from two followers, it went to, I think by the time we'd woken up the next day, it had had, you know, 40,000 views and I had 500 followers. And then a day later it had had over a hundred thousand views and I had a thousand followers. And, you know, I think that was only seven weeks ago and it's almost 17,000 followers. And so in that, I was trying to reply to the comments and there were some really lovely comments in there that, you know, were, were really great, but there was a lot of negative ones and some of them just blew me away. And, you know, I remember saying to you, I was like, I don't know what to say to these people. And so with some of them, I had a bit of a go back at the start, but now I just, yeah, I don't really worry too much about them. And, you know, it's, I don't know why that, you know, when you achieve something really good, there's always going to be people that try and drag you down. And in Australia, we call it the tall poppy syndrome, uh, where we, we try and cut down the tall poppy. But, you know, I think there's people just jump to conclusions as well. And, you know, I had a lot of comments around uh, rubbish and littering. And actually, more than a couple of people have, have told me that I shouldn't have left Ben's photo at the top and that I was littering. Uh, if there's anyone that's listening, I just want to add that the the card the photo was printed on cardboard, so it will biodegrade one day. Um, but yeah, I, I shouldn't litter, and you know we we took all of our stuff down. Everything that went up came down. Um, we didn't leave any rubbish there, and in actual fact, you know the mountain is getting slowly cleaned up. Um, most companies, uh, most most people that go up now bring more rubbish down than they take up, which is really great. Uh, the other things that I had, people assume that you have to be rich to climb Mount Everest. And, you know, I got called a rich kid and, you know, for, um, I mean, Bags, you know this, but for the listeners, I, I as I said before, I grew up uh, just with a single mum. I lived in a housing commission home um, and certainly was not well off. We were probably as close, you know, as poor as you can be in Australia, um, living in, you know, government housing and single mum who's on a pension and so definitely didn't come from money. And, and I think for me, part of the massive achievement was to be able to put myself in a financial position to be able to pay my own way to climb Mount Everest. You know, that was the first Everest that I had to climb was to how am I going to pay for it? And, you know, so there was, there was comments around that. There was comments around the rubbish. There was, like you said, people saying there's a Starbucks and it's easy to climb Mount Everest and the Sherpas do all the work and, you know, although the Sherpas do absolutely an amazing job and they do carry things, you know, it, it still has to be your legs that, that take you up there. And 
you know, there's different ways that people can do it. There's, you know, there's really expensive um, expedition companies and they obviously do more. And, you know, some people might even have two Sherpas, but for me, I, I could only afford to do it the absolute cheapest way. So the way I climb is just me and, and one Sherpa. We have a, a base camp and then, you know, it's carry your own gear. Um, you know, they take the tents, they take uh, oxygen, but, you know, the rest of it, it's, yeah, carry your own stuff. So, yeah. Uh, look, mate, I am so bloody proud of you. Your wisdom, the way that you are in life, the way that you attack life, the way that you are growing it's just impressive, mate, and I just absolutely love you, and I, I'm so thankful that you've come on and you've shared this story today. You are also, you have Ballsy Expeditions. Do you want to explain uh, for those that are listening, if they want to get in touch with you and they want to come and join you on a climb, how they can do that? Yep, absolutely. So first of all, I have a website. It's Ballsy with a Z, so B-A-L-L-Z-Y expeditions.com. And uh, I'm actually about to leave on the, the 25th of March, um, so this month, uh, over to Everest Base Camp again, where I'm guiding a team of 10 people into Everest Base Camp. Uh, where the ballsy expedition side of it comes from, uh, I said, I mentioned Ben earlier, who passed away. His first cancer that he had was testicular cancer, and he, uh, he had a testicle removed. And so when I climbed Mount Manaslu, I thought it was a pretty ballsy thing to do to climb the world's eighth, eighth highest mountain. And, you know, I really wanted to kind of honor Ben uh, and his legacy because, you know, it was his passing that got me into climbing in the first place, like I said. And so I started Booker's Ballsy Expeditions then. And so I raised money for the Queensland Cancer Council. And the goal was to raise $8,163 because that's the height of the, the mountain in meters. And we did that. We achieved it. And the other thing that I did was um, I got people to donate balls. And uh, it was footballs, soccer balls, cricket balls, all sorts of balls, volleyballs. Uh, and I donated them to the kids and schools on the way into the mountain. And so then last year when I did Mount Everest, I did the same thing. But this time I raised money to go to the schools. Um, you know, obviously COVID had, had been on and when you know, if there's no tourism in Nepal, then there's porters, there's tea houses, there's mountain guides that don't have any work and there's no job keeper over there. So they, they had no money. And so I raised money to help send the kids to school. Um, we raised a uh, little bit over $9,000 on that particular trek. I'm really excited about this trip and, and I can't wait. So yeah, we'll be doing one of those each year as well. So if anyone wants to come along on, on one of the trips, absolutely reach out. Yeah, get in touch. Ballsy Expeditions with a Z. Uh, make sure you go and check it out. Mate, thank you very much for joining us on the Orange Space. Is there anything that you'd like to say just before we go? If anyone is doing it, a little bit tough. Doesn't have to be about Mount Everest right now. It can just be about general life. Is there a, like a, a a piece of wisdom that you'd like to pass on? I am a big believer that life happens for you and and not to you. And I think sometimes it doesn't feel that way. Absolutely. Um, I also think that you know it's it's kind of ten percent what happens and ninety percent how you deal with with what happens. And you know one of the the things. We, we probably didn't even touch on it's a it's a completely different topic but you know 10 years ago I, I went through a pretty rough time and had a divorce and you know was I was homeless for a little while and unemployed and broke all at the same time and you know 10 years later um, both figuratively and, and literally on top of the world and 
you know, I just think back to, to my headspace then as well and, you know, what's happened in my life in the last 10 years and, and how it's turned around. And so, you know, I think if anyone's struggling, just make sure you reach out, get help, uh, talk to a professional as Bag said, or at the very least, talk to your mates. And even if you don't know how to explain how you're feeling, just, you know, just reach out and, you know, it's okay to, to not be okay. And, uh, you know, we just can't put so much pressure on ourselves to always be perfect and, you know, always think that you've got to always have your shit together. Cause let's be honest, none of us always have our shit together. <laughs>